0: Hey guys, welcome back. So today I'm actually doing this from my hotel room in Vegas because I'm here for some continuing education. So you might see, I don't have my headphones on and it might sound a little bit different. So hopefully, hopefully everything sounds okay still. We're actually going to be talking about bromethylene toxicity today. We had already talked about our anticoagulant toxicities and that's a rat bait when you can't make blood clots. And now we're going to be talking about a neurotoxic, meaning it's something to do with the nervous system. So let's kind of like break down what neurotoxin means. So neuro means the nervous system that usually involves the brain and the spinal cord and the nerves. And then toxin is going to be something you ingest that's poisonous. So rodenticides are toxins that are meant to kill rodents, such as mice and rats. So putting that all together just means that we're trying to have a rodenticide, or a toxin that's going to kill mice and rats that actually affects the nervous system. The most common neurotoxic rodenticide we have is called bromethalin. So for anybody who listened to the coagulopathy rodenticide, you'll know a little bit about this already. So bromethalin was created in the 1970s when rodents started to become resistant to warfarin, which is one of the anticoagulant rodenticides. Bromethalin was shown to kill 90% of rodents, and at that time, they saw that a lot of rodents were actually becoming immune to warfarin. And so this was great for people, especially like uh, farmers and stuff, because they're like, great, we can kill 90% of these rodents. That's exactly what we want. And then they put it out in a variety of forms as well. So they put it out blocks like you normally see, seeds, gummy worms, and then also pellet form, and also in a variety of concentrations too. That became the first problem for us as veterinarians is that we had to have this more powerful rodenticide that now comes in a variety of different forms and in a variety of different concentrations. Before with warfarin, it only came in blocks and we knew it was either going to be blue or green. And we knew pretty much like how strong it was going to be and how much they needed to ingest in order to cause a problem. But now we're getting more sophisticated things. The anticoagulants were getting more popular, so they're coming up with different types of anticoagulants, ones that last longer and kill faster. And now they're coming up with this neurotoxic rodenticide, ones that are going to affect the nervous system and kill more rodents as well, which also means it kills more animals as well too. Now that we have these seeds and these worms, the hard part too, is that they digest very quickly. So with blocks, sometimes they'll vomit it up and we'll see it in their vomit, or they'll have it in their stool and we'll see it in their stool now this one, if they ingest the seeds or they ingest the worm, it digests super quickly in their stomach and now they're not going to vomit anything up and we really don't know if this truly was a rodenticide or not. Cats are also more sensitive to this type of rodenticide than dogs are. It only takes a small amount of of what they eat compared to what a dog would eat to cause a problem with them. Let's talk about like how this bromethylene or neurotoxic rodenticide works. There's a very complicated cancer to this, okay? But um, not everybody has taken molecular biology, so I'm gonna try to like make this a little bit more understandable for you. So the central nervous system we talked about is the nervous system in general is the brain, the spinal cord, and the nerves, right? But the central nervous system, meaning like the center is what you can think of, is gonna be your brain and your spinal cord. The nervous system has lots of different types of pumps into the cell as every cell does. Every cell in your body has pumps that pump chemicals or electrons or energy, lots of stuff into and out of the cell as it needs it. In our spinal cord or in our nervous system, we have lots of those pumps as well. They all do many different things. But one of the most important pumps is called the sodium-potassium ATPase pump or sodium-potassium pump, just to make it a little bit shorter. But the pump... What it does is it's supposed to bring sodium out of the cell and push potassium into the cell. So sodium, when we think of like things like salt, table salt, that's sodium. And potassium is really important as well. We talked about this like in our Blocked Cats and one of the very first episodes. Potassium is extremely important. Potassium is one of those that if you have too much of something, it could kill you. So we try to make, make sure that that is very equal in the amount that's in there. Sodium, as we've talked about on some of the other podcasts too, has been something that um, water likes to follow. So if you eat a large amount of sodium, let's say you went to McDonald's and you're like, I want extra salt on those fries, right? You get so thirsty, so thirsty because all of that sodium is now going into the cells or it's being brought into other places. Water is following that. And now you feel like you're so thirsty or you're peeing it out. And also you are dehydrating yourself because there's so much water following sodium. So sodium is important for that sense. Like I said, for our cells, the sodium is going to go out of the cell and potassium is going to go into the cell, which means that water is going to go out of the cell as well. This is a normal process to what happens in our neurological system. That's different in other types of cells, but for our neurological system, this is typically what happens. Um, this keeps the nervous system functioning correctly, but you know, like I said, also helps keep the water balanced correctly as well. I've talked about this in water toxicity episodes. Like I said, water wants to follow that. And after the water follows the sodium, if there's lots of sodium in the cells, it actually makes those cells puff up and it causes neurological problems. This is similar to that water toxicity. So this neurotoxin works on the cells in that central nervous system in the brain and the spinal cord by stopping that sodium-potassium ATPase pump or sodium-potassium pump from working correctly. So that keeps the sodium inside the cell of the central nervous system. And then water, like I said, wants to follow into that. Eventually, if we like keep pushing water into the brain and into the spinal cord, it's going to start swelling. So that's something called cerebral edema, meaning brain swelling or spinal edema, meaning swelling of that spinal cord. Think of this as like a pipe in your ceiling that you didn't know was leaking. That water starts to absorb in that material of your ceiling and it causes it to bubble a little bit, right? And eventually it just bubbles more and more and those walls start swelling. It drips out of like little holes that it's starting to make and eventually just rips holes into the ceiling or into the walls wherever that water is leaking from. So it doesn't quite cause holes in your brain, don't worry, but it does cause swelling to occur in that brain. And that causes a really big problem. When that happens, you start having really bad neurological problems. Some of those symptoms that we're going to be seeing are one like things like muscle tremors because their brain is like overly firing, grand mal seizures, so grand mal seizures are the ones where they like fall over or they're paddling Uh, foaming at the mouth or shaking their head really violently. Those are grand mal seizures. And that's because the brain is just like being pushed against the skull and it's making them have that seizure because it's just constantly firing. You'll actually also see that they'll become really hyperactive as well and can have really high fevers. That's actually because of that part of the sodium potassium channel that I keep dropping, sodium potassium ATPase. When ATP is actually something that we need for energy of our cells. We think of like glucose and stuff or basically sugar, but really ATP is just the driving thing or ATP is the driving thing in our cells that makes a lot of our pumps work. And if it's stopping working, it actually breaks that down and makes a lot of heat. So again, I'm not going to go over a lot, a lot of that uh, molecular biology because it's it's quite intense, but just so you know, that's what that comes from. Not because of the sodium or because there's too much water, because you would assume that if there's too much water, they'd be colder. But it's actually because of the way that pump works, that they actually have a fever. They can become comatose because again, that, that brain is just pushing on their skull and unfortunately can cause death as well. So it can cause these symptoms anywhere between four hours to 36 hours after ingesting that rodenticide. At slightly lower doses, they can become paralyzed instead, like their back legs will be paralyzed or all four legs will be paralyzed, which can last for about one to five days. Cats tend to get this paralytic phase more than dogs do, but it is a possibility. I've just mentioned a lot of things, right? So they can have muscle tremors. When we think about muscle tremors, a lot of times we're going to think about snail bait or certain types of medications or getting into compost, things like that. Grand mal seizures, those can be things like brain tumors. It can be problems with diabetes, thyroid problems, so many other things. We'll talk about seizures another day, but so many things. Fevers, we're thinking about infections, inflammation. We're thinking about like salmon poisoning. We're thinking about so many other things. Cancer versus comatose and death. Those have a lot of differentials. But think about how many differentials I just came up with just on the fly for a couple of these. And there are so many more than that. So this one becomes really difficult to diagnose because there's no test that I can perform in the hospital setting that's going to say, this is what that pet got into is is a neurotoxin rhodecticide. There are tests that can be sent out, but typically they're going to require a tissue sample from the liver or the kidney or the brain or fat which we're not about to perform surgery on these pets because they're comatose or they're paralyzed or they're having seizures. We don't want to put them under anesthesia for surgery just to get a diagnostic sample and send it out and then know two weeks later after we've already fixed the problem that the pet got into a rodenticide. Most of the time, those are actually going to be tested when we do a necropsy. So for anybody who listened to Dr. Watson's, that is an animal autopsy essentially. Otherwise, neurotoxic rodenticides can look like a huge number of different toxins, diseases, mushroom toxicities, blue algae, uh, medications, spinal cord trauma, disc disease, head trauma. There's so many other things that it can look like, which sucks when they come in unless somebody has told us they got into a rodenticide. And this is a really important thing to ask those clients when they do come in and they're seizing or having some sort of tremors or comatose? Is there any way they could have gotten into any rodenticides? We're asking these questions. We have a lot of things that we have to think about because there's, again, so many differentials just from what I just discussed. So sometimes we'll forget about those things as well, like which things I should be asking about. But if you guys can cover some of those, whoever's doing triage, I know I talk about this extensively, like triage is actually So important to us because we need to know about these things. And if I'm already thinking about the 50 other differentials, I may have forgotten about mushrooms, or I may have forgotten about neurotoxic rodenticides. So asking those questions on if they could have gotten into any of those things really helps with this. Otherwise, the best thing is if they knew that they got into it, ask for the receptionist, asking them to bring their packaging. Because unfortunately, I've talked about this, the coagulopathy rodenticide, many companies make all those different types of uh, rodenticides. The most common one is going to be Tomcat, and the box looks the exact same for all of them. The only thing that's different is on the packaging, it's going to say the active ingredient is going to be different. So the picture looks the exact same, the color looks the exact same, everything looks the exact same. It's just going to say what that active ingredient is. So we can't have them just pull up a picture on Amazon or pull up a picture and say, it looked like this. We need to have the actual packaging or we need them to have some sort of SKU number from a receipt. So I tell people even on my other podcast, keep the box so that you know what kind of rodenticide they got into just in case. Have them bring in the packaging. That's the most helpful thing so we can try to figure out what type of redempticide it is and then what we need to do next. How much of this is actually toxic? That is a hard question because it depends on how concentrated that product is. Remember, I told you that there's a wide variety of concentrations and it cannot be hard to determine like how much they got into. If somebody just put a bunch of seeds out, how how much do you think of the seeds they got into? Who knows? If they put worms out, how many worms do you think that they got into? Who knows, right? Did anybody count how many worms they put out, right? There's no way to know. The blocks are a little bit easier because somebody would be like, I just put one block out. Block is gone. We've got an idea for those blocks on, on how much is a toxic dose. To give you an idea, about a 30-pound dog only needs about half an ounce to cause a problem. And an average block weighs about half an ounce. But here's the twist. There are some blocks that weigh four ounces. So that actually means it's not a block that's going to become a problem. Now we're going to have an eighth of a block that's going to become a problem. So that's why this packaging is so important as well. Yes, it vomited up a block. They may say that maybe it's a bromethylene, but I also need to know how much does each one of those blocks weigh? So we need all of those factors in order to know how to treat these guys best. If we don't know, I've said this on the coagulopathy podcast, if we don't know which type of toxin it is, I now have to treat for all the different types of toxins. That can get really expensive because we just don't know what it got into. So that box is super important. Like, I, I know I'm harping on that a lot, but it's, that's why it's so important. Let's talk about how we treat this then. You know, ideally, we found out, yes, we knew that this pet got into a neurotoxic rodenticide. If we've caught it within the first four hours, then we're going to want to make them vomit, so inducing emesis. Depending on what form it came into, like I said, we may not see any evidence of it in that vomit. It could be if it's in the block, we might see pieces of block come up. But if it's the worm form or the seed form, we're likely not going to see anything that digested very quickly. We still want to get as much of that chemical out as possible, even if it means it's just vomiting a bile. I've mentioned this before on other podcasts and also on my Vet's Explanation podcast. If somebody calls into reception and is like, hey, can I make my dog vomit with hydrogen peroxide? I don't suggest it. There are lots of things that can happen. I've seen people try to make their dog swallow hydrogen peroxide, and they inhaled hydrogen peroxide, and then they aspirated, and they've died. I've seen people overdose hydrogen peroxide. I've seen people create ulcers in the stomach with hydrogen peroxide. So therefore, I don't recommend they do it. If they're somewhere, let's say that they're four hours away from a vet hospital, which I know that there are definitely places that are closed around us, I've had people who have come all the way from definitely up towards Canada, and I've had people come from Oregon. So if they're four, four hours away and they have to make that pet vomit, then yeah, give the, have them give hydrogen peroxide. But ideally, we don't want to. Ideally, we want them to come down because we're going to give them one of two things, either drops in the eye, they're called clever drops, but it just basically makes them vomit, or we're going to give them an injection, which is apomorphine, which is going to make them vomit as well. And then ideally also calling Pet Poison Hop- Helpline or ASPCA. It depends on which type and whether they know how much they got into. If it's the block, it's probably not going to be as big of a deal to call Poison Control. But if it's the gummies, and it's probably going to be a bigger problem. And we probably need to have them call Poison Control. And just reminding them that there is a fee for it. You know, Some people get really bent out of shape about it, but it's a $95 fee, if I remember correctly. And if they pay that, and then they find out they don't actually have to bring their dog in. And they save themselves like $200 from the exam and also inducing emesis. It may be that they don't need to come in. So I do recommend that they call beforehand. Otherwise, sometimes, like I said, sometimes we can try to figure it out, but not always. It just depends on that type of road side that they got into. to. I'll remind them they're going to give them a case number. They need to write down that case number and give it to us. And then two, you can also tell them as well, there are certain insurances we'll cover calling poison control, and also if they have certain types of microchips, that'll actually cover poison control as well. So sometimes just telling poison control that they have a microchip or they have certain insurances, and that could be enough to be able to not have to pay that fee. So next, after we make that pet vomit, I usually talk to them about hospitalizing. So hospitalization is recommended in these cases because they can go downhill very, very quickly. We want to prevent that from happening. So like I talked about in the anticoagulant episode, I prefer the anticoagulant one because it's so easy. Like we can make them vomit, give them vitamin K, send them home. But in this one, it's just not as easy. And this has become a more prevalent one. There's no medication that I can give that's going to stop this from from progressing. Unfortunately, I can do things to prevent it. there's no antidote essentially for it it's not like the anticoagulant one where the antidote is essentially vitamin k there is no antidote for this we just have to help support them the reason why we want to hospitalize them is one we want to give them iv fluids Um, that's for a couple reasons one because we want to dilute out as much that's in that bloodstream as possible but the bigger reason is actually because we're going to want to give them activated charcoal I mentioned this in a few podcasts, but as a reminder, activated charcoal is not the same as just like liquefying the charcoal of the barbecue. So what people call and say, can I just do that? No, it's not the same thing. Please don't do that. Giving so much activated charcoal, though, can actually cause problems that look a lot like the neurotoxic rodenticides. If we give a lot of charcoal, it actually causes hypernatremia, which means high sodium. We just talked about how high sodium was a problem, right? But we want to give that activated charcoal so hopefully that it helps find a little bit of it but also pushes it as fast out of the system as possible. So we want to check the sodium before each time we give that activated charcoal for the reason of making sure the sodium is not high before we give it. If the sodium is high and we give another dose of activated charcoal, we're going to push it into hypernatremia and it's going to look like now we have the toxin that's causing the problem, which when it's not, it's actually because we have really high sodium and that causes all of those neurological things, including things like brain swelling. If we see that there's high sodium, so it's a really good thing for our people who are doing nursing care. If they watch for those things, like when you run an FMP and on there, hey, the sodium is really high on this dog. It is a thing to clue into to be like, oh, I should talk to the doctor and ask them if they actually want me to give the next activated charcoal dose because we could push this dog into hypernatremia and cause problems. Instead, I'm going to say, hold off. We're going to give the dog more fluids, try to bring that sodium down, and then try that activated charcoal again later. So otherwise, like I said, we might start treating it as if it was a neurotoxic redenticide, and we are going to do the wrong things to try to help bring that down. So it's really important not to just send them home with charcoal for this reason, because it could be that we send them home, there's no way for them to check the sodium, and then the dog crashes or becomes extremely hypernatremic. They come back and they try to euthanize the dog because obviously we're not doing well. Some toxicologists do recommend that we should watch them for about 36 hours after the ingestion because that's about how long it takes for them to potentially show signs. And then after that, they're usually able to return home. But some toxicologists, too, have only been recommending 12 to 24 hours of monitoring, just depending on the dose that they had gotten into. So somewhere between 12 to 36 hours is going to be our recommendations, depending on the dose and depending on the toxicologists. There's usually no long-term effects if we didn't show any signs during this. If we got the dog in, we made it vomit, we put on fluids, we gave him activated charcoal, no signs occurred. Then there's not going to be any long-term effects from this, so they should be okay. But always warn clients when they leave the hospital that they are going to have black stools from that charcoal. People get really worried in the next couple of days because they see their dog is having a black stool and they think they're bleeding internally. And yeah, they're not. Luckily, this is just from the charcoal, but we want to make sure that they know that before they go home. Now, that was the best case scenario, right? We knew that that's what they got into. Got it under control before it caused a problem. They were able to go home. That's not always the case let's say they're having seizures or they come in comatose or paralyzed then what do we do uh, this is really hard because again we don't exactly know what caused it so if we knew what caused it would have a plan but we really don't have a plan because we don't know what the cause was so we have to just start treating this symptomatically and ruling out problems to see if it, if any of these could be a cause we control the seizures with anti-seizure medications Um, Sometimes we have to do a couple different anti-seizure medications just to help stop those seizures because they can be so violent. Uh, We give them medication called mannitol to try to help bring down swelling of the brain and basically like dehydrates the brain essentially. Then if we know that the dog had got a neurotoxic rodenticide and it's at that point where it's comatose, we may pass a stomach tube to try to pump out all of that stuff. It's called a gastric lavage where we're flushing water into the stomach and all that stuff out of the stomach. So we can try to get out as much as possible, but only when we know that that's what it is for sure. If we don't know what that's what it is, there's really no reason to do that because there's lots of things that can happen during that. We usually have to have that pet sedate or anesthetized. They can aspirate from it. So it's not ideal unless we actually know that that's what they got into. And then likely performing things like blood work and radiographs to try to rule out other diseases. And then we have to give them time. The half-life of this toxin is actually six days, which means from day one, which is the day that they ingested it, six days later, there will be half of that amount in its system. So let's say it ingested four ounces. In six days, there will be two ounces still left in their system. By day 12, there's going to be a quarter of that. So by day 12, it would be two ounces that are left and so on and so forth until it's completely broken down. So that can be weeks, right? So Depending on how much they ate, it just depends on like how long this is going to take to come out of their system. And unfortunately, some pets will have permanent damage if they did have neurological signs in the first place. We don't know what parts of the brain are affected, though. We don't know what's going to be permanent or not. We just have to wait weeks to determine if they are going to be permanent damages or not. And there's always a chance, obviously, that they're not going to make it through this toxicity as well. Sometimes we stop the medications too, thinking that they're improving, but the signs actually continue. And that's because we cannot get enough of the drugs that we need into where that toxin is to act on it. It's like when we're giving charcoal, charcoal just stays in the GI system. It's not going to go to the brain. We're giving anti-seizure medications. It's not going inside that cell. It's just going to other parts of the brain to try to help stop that reaction. There's nothing that's going to stop that sodium-potassium ATPase pump from working incorrectly. There's no drug that we can get to do that. All right. So let's like sum this up really quickly. It was kind of a lot that we talked about. If we know that the pet got into some sort of rodenticide, super crucial that they bring them in as well as the packaging you know, immediately, giving them medication to make them vomit called emesis, having them call pet poison helpline or ASPCA poison control, get them hospitalized on IV fluids with activated charcoal as soon as possible. And if this is affecting their nervous system, this can cause pretty significant damage to the brain and spinal cord. So acting like really quickly on this is best when people call in and say, I'm just going to watch it. That's not a good idea. They should bring them in as soon as possible. It is easier for us to prevent this and not to have to try to cure it. And then giving the medication to try to help with all of those other clinical signs. So medications to try to help decrease the swelling of the brain medications to help stop seizures, medications to try to help with their paralysis or flipping them side to side if they're comatose. And then if they do get to that point where they start to recover, it could be weeks before they're fully recovered and they may not make it through at all or may have problems, permanent damage. And then also, again, they're always going to have black stool for the next couple of days. So like I said, prevention better than than a cure. We want to have them safeguard their house, keep packaging if they're going to use it. But typically, the best way to try to keep them out of this is to have them call a professional pest control company and having them tell them they have pets so that they can try to use a safer method for this. And substances that are not going to be easily accessible to our pets. And then also, I've never 100% known if a dog eats a rat that just ate a rodenticide is going to cause a problem. So there's a really interesting study out of Tufts, which researchers checked a bunch of owls and hawks to see if they had bromethalin in their systems because obviously they eat just tons and tons of rodents and they did find that about 30 percent of them did test positive for bromethalin so that means that they were able to get exposed just by them eating rodent they weren't eating blocks they're not typically eating seeds and stuff off the ground So they're not eating things like the actual block and stuff itself. They're going to be eating the rodents. So that's how we know that it can potentially be that if a dog then ate a rat that ate the bromethalin, that they could potentially get it that way as well. And then also remember, it's not an immediate death for them. It's going to take time for that toxin to cause a problem. So if it takes 36 hours, they're starting to become weak by hour 24 even easier for the dog to get that rodent then, and then they can then get toxin from that rat that ate the neurotoxin. All right, so this brings us to the end of our neurotoxic rodenticides. Hopefully that was a little bit more understandable, better than trying to explain molecular biology to everybody. And so I'm going to tell you my funny story for today. It's all about me going to Vegas. So that's where I am right now, in Vegas, trying to do my continuing education. Obviously, you can see I'm not at the casinos, but I see it's off the strip where this place is and there are two hotels that are associated with it. They're both by Marriott and they're both, they're like a block away from each other. I get here and I call the company to come pick me up so that they can take me to the hotel and I get to the Marriott and I walk in and she asks me for my name give her my name. And she's, like, I'm sorry, you don't have a reservation. And I was like, no, no, I have a reservation. I even checked in early. So I know that I have a reservation because it asked me about it. And she was like, no, no reservation. Sorry. And I was like, I am fairly certain that I do. So we went back and forth for this five minutes until finally she's like, I think you might be at the wrong hotel. And I was like, oh, is there another Marriott that on the same street? She's like, yeah, a block away is another Marriott. I was like, okay, maybe that's what it is. So I walk over to the other Marriott. And yes, luckily, it was the other Marriott that was the problem. So I was able to check in and get my my room. And of course, I checked in and she says, by the way, none of the elevators are working. So you're going to have to walk up steps. I was like, great. Walk up three flights of steps. No problem. And then I went out later on that night to go see my one of my friends. Came back and I told the driver. The Uber driver gave him the address. He drops me off. I get out because it says Marriott on it. Looks like all the other Marriotts. And I go to walk in the lobby and I was like, this is not the correct lobby. And so I look and I'm looking around and I'm like, I'm not even not even at the right one. So I look out and I'm like, it's another freaking Marriott. So I look on my phone and I'm like, nope, I'm an hour away from here. So it's now midnight. And I'm like, do I just catch another Uber or do I walk? And I look on Uber. Says the another next Uber is going to be like forty minutes before they can come get me. I was like, that's stupid. I'm just going to walk. It's an hour walk. But then I start walking down this very desolate road at midnight. It was a bad idea. It was should not do that. It was very sketchy. So by thirty minutes in, I was like, nope. I'm going to see if I can catch a ride now. So I went back onto Uber. Luckily, there was another Uber. So. She drops me off. Again, I am dropped off at the wrong hotel. Another freaking Marriott that looks the exact same from the outside. Luckily, though, this is only three blocks away from my Marriott. And so I was able to go to the correct Marriott. So I've now been to, what, three different hotels that were not my hotel. So we'll see what happens tomorrow. But tomorrow we're supposed to have a van that's taking us back and forth from here to the center. So hopefully that should be okay. All right, last thing is I actually do want to tell you about my fun animal because I think it's really interesting. So we're going to talk about guinea pigs. So we're talking about this uh, neurotoxic rodenticide. So guinea pigs are a rodent, right? They're actually a rodent from South America, but they're not affected by this neurotoxic rodenticide. They can get insanely high doses and not be affected by it. So just to give you an idea, they can eat about a thousand times more than that of a rat or a mouse without being affected. That is crazy. And the reason why is because they don't have this certain type of protein that's needed to break down the bromethalin into its metabolite or actually just breaking it down into the form that needs it needs to be in in order to cause the toxin. So if it doesn't break it down, it can't cause the toxin, which causes the neurotoxin. Super interesting. Also, super interesting things about guinea pigs. I actually do love guinea pigs. I used to do guinea pig rescue. So they are believed that about 3,000 years ago, they were domesticated from around the Andes Mountains in South America. So what we know now is like Bolivia and Peru. And no one knows 100% why they're called guinea pigs. The theory is that because they came to Europe by a boat from South America, back then, things that came from far away to Europe, they would call them Guinea. So that might be a possible reason why Guinea pig is part of their name. Other people postulated that they went to other places like Africa and had gotten their name from there. But, and there's also something about, uh, oh, I don't remember, there's another theory, but they that was actually one that was debunked. But those are the, the two biggest theories, but the most popular theory is it came from, from when they went to Europe because it was something from far away. And it's referred to as a pig. They assume because of the noises that they make and the way they act. So when they they squeal, it sounds like a pig. And then the way that they burrow and stuff makes them think that they are like pigs. And then, in fact, they're so much so like a pig that they actually call the males boars and the females sows, just like in pigs. And then there are rodents, like I said, but they're very specifically part of the family called Cavidae. So sometimes you'll call hear us call them cavids or or days, which are rodents that are specifically from South America. And some other little fun facts about them is when they get really excited, they do this thing, they can hop in the air. It's called popcorning. You should look it up. And they're really good swimmers, but they can't climb. They can hop over obstacles like dogs do, though. If you have them, you can have them hop over little obstacles. But if you've never owned one, they're very social creatures, and because of that, they really like to be with people or be with other guinea pigs, just depending. They can usually be in groups of two to three, but they don't really like more than that. And I'd say the biggest obstacle to owning them when people ask about them is that they need their cage cleaned really well and constantly because they'll get something called bumblefoot, which is where they have this really bad like swelling of their feet because it's it's a bacterial infection that's gotten in their feet and causes really bad ulcers. It's very painful for them. That's how I did most of the guinea pig rescues is that I would take them when they had bumble flip and I would um, fix them. But it's not a f- quick fix, which is something people don't like. They want just an antibiotic that's just going to make it go away. They're really like this is months of doing um, bandage changes on them to try to get them better. And then the other thing is that they also need to be given vitamin C because they cannot make it themselves. So people have studied or learned about um, pirates and how they would get scurvy. This is something that our guinea pigs can get as well because they just don't get enough vitamin C unless people are like putting it in their water every single day. All right, that's my spiel on guinea pigs. I just think they're really, really cool animals. And if you have any questions, like I said, obviously, anytime... Please come find me, email me, text me, find me on Facebook, whatever. Just let me know if you have your questions and also if you have any other topics. I have lots and lots of topics I'm going to be doing. And Dr. Z is going to be coming on again here soon because she's going to be doing Cushing's disease for us. And I have a couple other people that I'm trying to get lined up as well. All right. Thanks, guys.